Welcome to this series of podcasts for FinTech CTO Club, a community where tech executives learn and share best leadership practices. Here, Vasil Soloschuk, CEO of Insart and the author of FinTech CTO Club, will discuss burning topics on the FinTech product development arena with the technical leaders in the industry. This is episode 5 of our podcast. We are going to talk with Shane Higginbotham, Product Manager at Blaze Portfolio, which develops scalable investment portfolio rebalancing and real-time trade order management technology. So could you please introduce yourself? What's your current role? What's your background in uh, fintech? My name is Shane Higginbotham. I'm the Product Manager over here at Blaze Portfolio. Um, I'm responsible for primarily managing our development of our current platform and our redesign next generation of our application. Um, our application, Atom Align, is a uh, trading platform that allows you to create complex models for your, uh, for your finance, uh, financial accounts that you want to apply, uh, as well as allowing you to trade your, those positions and those uh, uh, stocks, mutual funds, bonds, etc., over the internet through uh, Fix. Um, sorry if I need to restart for this. So, what do you think uh, are the major challenges for your current role? The major challenges I currently have are I'm a I came in from more of an agency background where I was mainly working on managing custom t- uh, web and ap- uh, mobile applications for a v- wide variety of industries, including fin- uh, FinTech. But in doing so, because I was more focused on a project management standpoint, most of the time we were coming in and building something from scratch. With FinTech, a lot of the infrastructure and a lot of the applications have already existed. Some even, uh, they're even still in use 30, 40 years later, surprisingly enough. So one of the challenges I had when I was coming in here was working and trying uh, with the technology that we have from our existing platform, which is even that us is still relatively new, but in technology moves pretty fast and trying to adapt what we currently had uh, as our needs uh, grew as we went forward, coming up with new features and new technologies, being able to improve our performance and scale up to a larger and larger um, size of the application to be able to handle more and more accounts, more and more users, more and more trades. So you kind of get a little bit... um, controlled by the technology decisions that came before you. And then you have to come up with uh, the challenges coming up with creative solutions to adapt that technology for whatever uh, the ever-changing technology that is basically always coming up in the on the internet. Okay, cool, cool. So, you know, in FinTech companies, we observe that uh, the very typical situation that we would have a couple uh, leadership roles like CEO, CTO, and head of product, and uh, they are they work jointly together, uh, but also and but also focused uh, on each area. Uh, so what? How how does it work in your company? So who plays what roles? Uh, and how you collaborate with them. So this is interesting to know. So I guess you could say that the, uh, the company has three main kind of sources for that. We have Bryson Powell, who's our CEO and founder. Um, Bryson has a very extensive uh, background in financial technology and consulting. And he is really kind of the visionary of what functionality do the advisors are they used to working with? What do they need? What are the problems that they're going to be facing going forward? And what technology uh, or what features can we adapt and integrate into our system to play a role in kind of like uh, the ecosystem of financial advisement products? 
um, Joe Tabak, who is our um, director of operations, he views it from more from a lower level, from an everyday, what are the clients actually doing in the system, in the trenches? What do they need? Where are their pain points? How can we improve from there? And that gives us kind of like a, a boots on the ground, letting us know where people are actually having um, either areas where they want more or, or areas where they're experiencing pain points or what new or what features do they actually need to do, uh, want to use in an everyday situation from a variety of roles. And then for myself, I'm running over most of the development and features uh, and new technologies that we're going to be implementing that are not necessarily strictly uh, from one industry or not. A lot of times we look at other industries who are facing similar problems. We bring that into our application and try to figure out how we can make, uh, improve our financial technology to take advantage of problems that have been solved in completely unrelated fields. And that's one thing that a lot of people just really neglect is you may have a problem that you're trying to solve in your application for finance, but that problem may have been solved by something completely different like logistics. Mm -hmm. Utilize that and see how you can turn that to your advantage and, uh, and kind of have an edge over your competitors. So I look at it a lot from more of a higher perspective, a high level view where I want to know where are all the features in the applications at, how are they performing and what we can do to make them more robust and come out with new functionality to say better integrate with our partners. Okay. So, um, as soon as uh, you're always, uh, so you're in charge of the product management, and this is very important, uh, you know, to set up an efficient product management approach because you can have a great idea, you can have great clients, but you need to understand what should be developed next, next what uh, value you would like to bring next. Uh, so how, how does it work at your company? How do you... Um, how do you run the product management? What what the approach? So like, how do you prioritize what should be done next? How do you define? I mean, like, how do you translate clients' needs to specific requirements, um, or maybe a specific trends? Uh, uh, so it, it is interesting uh, to learn more about these insights. From a high level perspective, sorry about that. From a high-level perspective, um, what we do is we try to figure out where we want to be in the f any given time in the future and when do we need certain things to be developed uh, or to become available. And then we somewhat work backwards. So we figure out that, hey, we want to release this product on this date. How do we get there? Um, working backwards from that date to, to get to where we are now. Um, that can help you decide whether or not you need more resources or whether or not you need to push that date further back or uh, adjust where you're prioritizing other things in, around it. Um, but we look, we would take these, um, these things and we kind of pass it around in meetings to um, kind of get gauge that priority and, and uh, need for them from uh, Bryce and Joe and I from our different kind of areas and perspectives. Um, okay. Use, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, uh, sometimes uh, what I see uh, is that if you listen to your clients, and this is, uh, in, in most situations, this is a, a, a very, uh, it's it's a right way to, to do it. So you listen to your clients and you're trying to implement what they ask for, but uh, uh, with the constrained resources, in many cases, you can't develop some, you know, big new features or, you know, some uh, to deliver some new, uh, uh, so, so some new components or services in your, in your product. So you just stick to enhancing what you what you have already so what do you think uh, what what would be would be the right strategy or maybe you can 
share a couple examples or maybe some example uh, where it is uh, a good uh, a, a correct strategy you know to to, to stick to uh, uh, requirements and feedbacks uh, from your clients and maybe another example where you need to uh, just put some resources to deliver something new that is not maybe asked by your clients immediately, but uh, they will benefit uh, uh, in future having this feature uh, in their belt. So what, what, what do you think about this? Well, Henry Ford had that uh, famous quote about, if I listen to my customers on what they want, they would, yeah. I would give them a faster horse. Um, correct, correct. This is the, exactly what I'm talking about, yeah. <laughs> so what you need to do is you need to, since we have a better perspective of the application and what it can do, um, and we know that our clients tend to get a little bit of a tunnel vision because they're focused on their domain, our goal is basically to prevent ourselves from getting that same tunnel vision and to look into the future of what will they need three years from now, not what they need right now. Because yes. um, you have this lead time and you, uh, for developing it, and you know that if I want, we know that they're going to want something in the future, but we know that the technology is not here right now, it's not fast enough, or the internet connection is not fast enough for right now. Well, in three years, things will radically change, as we've seen going back all the time. The, they'll have more bandwidth. They'll have better computers by the time we get there. So we need to. We do want to plan around that, because one of the trends on the internet right now, and in, in technology and development, is pushing everything back to the server side, whereas for a long time it was on the client side on people's computers. That's the that is the power and concept behind web apps primarily. That wouldn't have been possible, say, 20 years ago when everyone was even just getting off of dial-up and into DSL. Right now, I am talking to you on a gigabit connection. That allows me to do much more. So you, you need to look at what your client's needs will be in the future and just plan around what you know that, that they will need and how you can modify your application to get to that point before anyone else. Okay, yeah, so that's great, that's great. So, you know, um, continuing this conversation regarding the product management, uh, it's interesting to understand uh, where do you stand, where, do, uh, wh where is your company in the, you know, like universe of Wellstack, uh, applications. Uh, so uh, I have talked to many companies, so maybe I've done some like 100 interviews already. And, uh, you know, I see that this space is pretty fragmented. And uh, uh, some companies, they have a strategy like to, uh, to uh, provide the all-in-one solution, uh, mm -hmm. like develop all the features. Uh, that uh, financial advisors uh, could, could need in their business. The others, they are focusing on uh, on the uh, or mo on more niche uh, services or components. So uh, you are focused on rebalancing and tra trade order management. Uh, but uh, how it, it's interesting to know how do you see your company, your product in this universe of all the well-stack uh, tools available on the market and uh, how do you see it going forward maybe like what's what the strategy for the next one or two years well the one thing that we always need to keep in mind is what we are good at what is our core competency and that is rebalancing modeling and order management we view ourselves as sort of like a little bit in a niche and a little bit more general. We do a lot of the things that some of the big players just really can't do. We kind of go the extra mile and give that extra power to people that they're kind of looking at while also being able to work with anything that they're working with. 
if they're using even one of our competitors um, financial accounting systems and they just want to use our rebalancer instead of theirs we try to make that um, make ourselves adaptable for that and that's where our really our strength is that we could you be used with anyone or we can be used standalone even if we're not an all-in-one for um, certain different things we can still integrate with others that allow us to kind of fill whatever gap that they need to increase their power. Yeah, it makes so, sense definitely. So what we kind of need to do or what we look for is how do we improve all, what we have right now and increment it to make it so that it is even more powerful and is even farther ahead of our competitors in those areas while kind of adding on more and more of this utility to kind of take over the market. Okay, okay. So, you know, the strategy is uh, really very important and uh, you need to have a clear vision for the next couple years to be, you know, to be successful in future and currently as well. But, you know, what I, what, what I, what I think is, is even more important is the execution. And uh, it's interesting to know how the how do you organize the whole development process in your company? How do you structure the team? How do you organize the process? What maybe you can tell us some uh, insights or some uh, uh, you know tricks and tips uh, how to do how to deliver the successful software product to the market. The key really is planning to be able to understand what you are going to be doing and have it all written out so that you, because one of the biggest issues in anything, but especially in development is communication. People tend to lose their requirements or mistranslate it. And if you give anyone any room to um, misunderstand a requirement, they are going to misunderstand it. So we put focus a lot on using um, JIRA and Confluence where we can track all of our issues, refer back to them, and make sure we have a good history of how things were done, as well as having, um, we use Confluence to build a kind of like a living product documentation where when we make changes to our application, we can go in and update different modules in Confluence that are embedded among pages so that any change we make propagates throughout the system and everyone will know what exactly we're working on and what exactly is the requirement, even if it was written years ago, compared to a lot of other systems where you just end up having like 10 documents with the exact same feature, which one is the current one and which one uh, is the one we actually did. So a lot of it is just self-organization for making sure your development team knows what they're doing and making sure the product team knows what to give them to do their job. Okay. So how, how big is the current engineering team? I want to say we have about 15 developers and QA resources that are currently working on the products uh, at any given time. Um, we tend to shift a little bit of priorities around in order to keep everyone fresh and up to date on what we're doing. And um, it's really just kind of like a, making sure everyone's skills are kind of like mixed and matched so that in any given time, uh, if someone, for example, is out or someone ends up leaving, we have coverage for that knowledge in the system and we can, uh, if in an emergency, someone is able to go in there and develop and fix whatever they need to do. So do you have something like squads or sub teams working on some uh, specific features or, pro or projects? Or maybe they are split it across the layers of architecture, like front-end, back-end developers. How does it work? Like we have them split a little bit into front-end and back-end, and then we have some core teams for the different versions of the application or different projects that are working on. 
Um, but we try to have kind of like a Venn diagram. We have overlap between the teams so that if there is a crunch in any particular area, we can more easily shift resources between the teams without actually ruining the team dynamics. So we have, you know, a team for our um, primary version of the application. We have a team for our distributed asynchronous version of the application. And we have a team for our um, new redesign of the application. But there, there is a lot of cross collaboration as each team is really working on an overlap of, uh, of a domain of another. Okay. Okay. So what do you think about uh, using um, a kind of metrics to measure the performance of the engineering team? So do you think uh, it makes sense to have any kind of metrics or it, uh, or maybe it doesn't make sense? So what's, what's your opinion here and what's uh, uh, best practices do you have? That's an interesting because I am of the view that there, as soon as you make something a metric is no longer valuable as a way to measure anything. As soon okay. as, as soon as you make someone say, this is what you're being uh, judged on all they uh, history shown, like all people do is just do that one thing and then you lose everything else. Mm -hmm. You also lose, um, and you, you make people kind of feel uncomfortable or anxiety because people will work at different paces and they will work at different qualities. If you really push a metric, you might end up risk, uh, risking, say, favoring the people who build their uh, modules really, really fast, except that their fast builds are buggy or don't have all the features. The guy who might take few days longer, uh, he seems to be slower than everyone else, his velocity's down, but once he delivers, you end up never having to uh, send it back because everything works. So you really want people to feel that, the, the most important thing is that they feel that they have a power to affect and improve the product without fearing the fire and brimstone manager that they're going to be put in a place where they're in the best place to uh, succeed and have their resources. Mm -hmm. And the way that you really get people to keep stay on track is simply um, to really do uh, increase the communication, make it so that they know that uh, what the requirements are, that you know what not only what they're working on, but where are they struggling with, where are they running into roadblocks and is there anyone else who can help with them? Um, Another good technique, instead of using a metric, is to use pair programming and pair testing, where you may have some two developers or two QA, a QA and a developer, or I often do this as myself with the um, having someone from the product team sit with a developer or a tester and just go through the code. You'll find way more, you will improve things way more than you could with than any um, than any like dedicated metric you might try to draw, uh, draw because you'll be able to see the actual quality of the application. But how can you understand that one engineer is uh, performing better than another? Um, A lot of it is um, that you're not really doing this with one engineer. You're rotating between all of the engineers to see okay. what they're working on and how they're doing. And you do not just keep one engineer in isolation, you have them work together so that generally everyone will know everyone else's skills because they are collaborating with each other. Um, if, you, if you really go with just metrics, I know many developers who look great on metrics, but I would take a, a different developer who looked worse any day because I know he would actually get the job done to the spec, to the requirements, to the quality compared to someone who's only developing for the metric. Okay. Okay. So, you know, back to the uh, a set of features that you have and uh, uh, Blaze portfolios, you have uh, so many integrations done and 
you know, it's a typical, it's a typical probably strategy for many fintech companies to provide APIs yourself and integrate uh, uh, some other solutions. And for for a kind of solution that you have, it's it's really uh, so you you really need to provide a good API. But uh, my question here is, uh, as soon as you you've done many integrations, so what uh, uh, factors would you name, uh, or what things we need to be aware about uh, to be successful with the integration project? So based on your experience, maybe you can tell us some specific things, how to be successful uh, when you do this integration project with somebody, with some other solution. The most important thing with any integration project that really just keeps coming back time and time again, regardless of the technology you're using, is, is the data accurate and useful? What format am I getting the data in and can I use it and do, does it have the information I need? Because a lot of times you might try to go for what, uh, an integration that looks really good on paper, but once you uh, dig into it, you find that you can't actually use the data that's being done or you have to run it through some sort of translation to get into your system. Or the worst is when you're running an integration and you find out that the data you're getting is garbage. It's data that is completely unlike the actual data you're going to be working with. That happens a lot with um, when you're working with a, uh, a partner to integrate and they give you a sandbox. You look at their sandbox, you develop to their sandbox. You really need to do though is you need to get um, a glimpse of what it looks like in production because you would be, you would be surprised how many times what you're building towards has no relation at all to what is actually being used, the actual data being used by your clients in production. So that's the kind of like the biggest thing and the biggest advice I would give to someone who is beginning an integration is look, don't look at the test data first. Look at what the end data is that you're actually going to be used uh, using is and then build to that. It doesn't matter what, how, what format you're getting the data in or how you're getting the data. It just, it mainly is the quality of the data itself. Okay. Okay. But how can you verify that uh, the quality of uh, the data that you're getting from the other provider is, is, is good or, you know, you need to have a kind of metrics as well. Anyway, or what, what, how, 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 how can you understand that the data is actually correct? the data that you're getting from the uh, from the other system, from the other provider? Like anything, it really kind of bears that you would want a point of comparison. For example, let's say you have a um, manual process of, in, of getting data for uh, from a provider. They're opening up an API for you to integrate. You want to make sure you know that the data that you're getting from that API matches the data you're currently getting or is improved upon it and has uh, more that you can use. You also want to use kind of like your own knowledge and of what the data should be, finding out what data should you be getting and comparing to see does it match expecting or what I want to what I want to do with it um, it generally can be pretty easy to see if the data is quality or not once you have something to compare with the problem is once you're in um, kind of like a vacuum and only thing you have to to reference anything with is the data that they're providing hence why one of the best ways to do is instead of trying to look at the data they want to hand you look at the data that you're going to use from them and see if that actually solves your problem and that you can use it in your system. Um, okay. Because if the prices are off, if the quantity is always wrong, if the um, you're importing an account and the account name and has no actual ID that's unique to it because it changes every time, consistent, accurate data is what you want. And the only way to, to get it is to just 
to look okay. and to ask. Okay, okay. So when you develop the API yourself for, you know, uh, how to do it uh, in a way that, you know, uh, your clients will not, or your partners who integrate with yourself through your API will not be complaining regarding the things that you just mentioned, like the, the data is not clean enough or API is uh, uh, maybe not described in the right way. And maybe you can name a couple of, uh, you know, th the most important things that uh, we need to implement, we need to do when we implement uh, your own API for the, for the others. When you're building out your own API, you want to build it in a couple of different ways or a couple of different things in mind, but a lot of it really comes down to documentation and communication and the very easy way to test and verify your own API is using, uh, is performing correctly. You want to be able to have the documentation that tells you where everything is and how to get it not only for your integration partners, but so you yourself can use it. Um, another very uh, powerful thing is to use, is to build it so that it self-documents. A lot of times this is done by, you build a portal, uh, a website that interfaces with your, um, your system, and it just is a list of all the APIs that you have in your site and gives you the ability to request and pull data, give the exact commands and settings you want to use, and then see what the data looks like when you get it. And it makes it so much easier to know what you're getting, how you're getting it. Even if there's, even if you are limited on the amount of documentation you have, just being able to see the commands and what you're going to get and the format is, does a lot to do that. Another technique you can use is having your front end and your backend communicate through an API so that by simple virtue of building your application, you will already have an API. Mm -hmm. So can you name uh, like maybe some example of the API uh, that is described in really a good way? So maybe some example that you like the most. An example is portfolio, I guess. One integration that we're, uh, we've been working with for a long time is Black Diamond. They okay. have a, uh, they do exactly what I was mentioning. They have a portal where you can go into it. You can see all their endpoints, all their calls, and see uh, and use their, um, their interface to just bring back the data that you want and make sure it's in the format that you want it to be in. Um, it makes it so much easier than having a company throw you a CSV and say, here's the data, so map it to this, and then find out that, oh, that was uh, data they used 10 years ago in testing. It doesn't look like that now, and, and your uh, integration breaks the moment it starts. Okay, okay. So you mentioned uh, previously that the communication is very important. Uh, well, when you uh, when you develop the the software and the communication is very important between all the team members and uh, what we have found also that uh, uh, that it is efficient if engineers uh, understand all the inside outs of the financial things and uh, so they, they they spend less time to understand requirements then and uh, less miscommunication happens actually between engineers and product managers and uh, uh, but the question my question is uh, so do do you do you think that some formal trainings or uh, some knowledge trans transfer about the business domain about the uh, financial stuff and uh, some financial knowledge across the engineers is uh, is uh, uh, something important or uh, engineers they just need to uh, you know to be able to read requirements correctly and maybe ask a few questions uh, and then just implement uh, according to requirements 
So actually, what 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 do you think about about uh, uh, training engineers in uh, in uh, financial things and financial knowledge, like financial literacy and like portfolio? What is portfolio management like basics, but maybe going deeper? Uh, so what what do you think about this? I think with any industry and any project, you do benefit a lot from learning as much domain knowledge as you can pick up. But in my opinion and in my experience, especially working across a wide variety of projects and industries, the most important thing is to know how to solve a problem and how to find the information you need to solve that problem on your own. Because development really is just constant problem solving. You are just, you are given a problem to uh, solve. And as soon as you solve it, you're going to go on to the next one. It's constant self-learning, constant self-education. And formal training is important and can help a lot. But in my opinion, in my experience, what's more important is the informal training of the developer seeking out the information he needs to learn how to uh, do what he's uh, doing. So if he's implementing something with, say, options, it's if he reaches out and educates himself on it, even if it, uh, especially if it's through talking to that, uh, to a subject matter expert on your team to learn more about it, that get, has a higher rate of transfer of knowledge to him than forcing them to go through a formal training that they may or may not pick up because engineers would rather be coding. It's yes. very, very important to let them get the information they need to solve their problem and they will retain it much more uh, thoroughly than being given the information without a problem to solve. Okay. Okay. So somewhat uh, on communication, uh -huh. Uh -huh. If, somewhat on communication though, um, I mentioned it's important, but in my experience, both from when I ran my own company, um, Build This, which was a custom web and mobile app development company that um, was acquired by Stickout Social prior to my joining uh, uh, Blaze. The one of the most important things, though, is it is communication, but it's also to know when to communicate to keep it at uh, good fixed intervals so that they they know what they're doing for them to communicate with you at uh, appropriate times and for you to when you need information from them to let them give it to you on their time one of the biggest problems and uh, one of the biggest mistakes that a lot of product and business um, people face is they don't know how to talk to their developers you want an update of something, you go in, you want to talk to your developer and you get an update from him. Mm -hmm. But every time you talk to your developer and interrupt him, on average, you lose 30 minutes of productivity before they can get back into what they were doing before, mm -hmm. even if it's just a simple question. So a lot of the communication is actually knowing when to talk and when to just leave them to do what they do best and perform for you. Mm -hmm. But uh, uh, we can uh, stick to an agile approach when you have like daily stand-ups or formal meetings uh, mm -hmm. scheduled uh, uh, on the daily or weekly basis on some specific time so that, uh, you know, everybody know when to talk and uh, everybody know uh, when they need to stick uh, to just doing the coding and implementation for their own. So... Um, but that's what makes uh, stand-ups and uh, sprints so powerful, and I don't think people really kind of uh, acknowledge it or understand it until they really get into it. And that is the power of a stand-up and the power of a sprint meeting to you know lay out your week mm -hmm. is that it happens at a certain time. You know it's going to happen, and it's within that fixed interval. Because once you start bringing that out of there and scattering it between the week in, uh, in meetings or updates or constant uh, like questions, 
you just lose a lot more productivity than if you just cleaned it all up and had it scheduled in uh, a certain period and just waited till uh, say the next one to get your update. Okay, okay. So, you know, the other topic I would like to discuss is uh, uh, sometimes I see that uh, engineering teams and uh, product teams, they're somehow fighting across the topic of technical depth when the engineering team, they want to, you know, improve uh, improve uh, software architecture, uh, maybe migrate to uh, newer versions of, of the tools or frameworks. Uh, uh, but this, uh, you know, do refactoring work, uh, maybe split the system to microservices, whatever. Uh, but this uh, actually doesn't add uh, uh, business value for, for clients, uh, doesn't uh, add some new features. Uh, but it improves the architecture, make it more, you know, like scalable, more efficient, more maybe more secure uh, for the future needs. Uh, from the other perspectives, uh, perspective, you definitely need to, you know, to deliver features that are requested for by clients, or if you implement some uh, new new project, uh, you need to hit the market, you know, before the competitors probably. Uh, to be successful, what, 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 what experience do you have uh, balancing uh, the effort to eliminate the technical debt and to deliver the actual business features? So the business features is a what question. And the people who answer the what, who provide it are the product team. The product team is going to determine what are we building and you want the development team to determine and you leave them to determine the how you want um you want the people who are the product experts and your uh, to really or your subject matter experts to be the ones who can make the decisions on what they know best but you do need to uh manage what we call gold plating where you are putting in a feature just for the sake of putting in a feature. But, and there's one thing that a lot of times is really missed out on the business side, is a concept called technical debt. Mm -hmm. The longer you go without that upgrade, without going to the next version, without upgrading your tools, your infrastructure, the knowledge and subject matter uh, of your team itself, you build up what is called technical debt. And the thing with technical debt is it has to be paid sometime. And it, like anything with technology, it increases exponentially. So the longer you wait on your technical debt, the more and more expensive exponentially it's gonna be to fix that and replace it going forward. Where a tool that, or a framework that you could be updating every quarter uh, to their latest version to keep yourself up to date um, is something that might seem kind of superfluous and excessive. You find out yourself six down, years down the line, nothing is compatible, and now you have to rebuild your entire application just because you fell behind your updates. Mm -hmm. You do need to prevent gold plating, and you need, do need to prevent... Um, engineers from adding too much fat in there because everyone, when it comes to their favorite thing, which, you know, your coding, your IT, and your infrastructure, you do like to add more and more and more to it that not necessarily is critical, but you can't ignore your technical debt. You do need to make sure that you not only are building for your capacity and, and needs right now, but also where am I going to be two years from now? Okay. So what do you think about the, you know, the next big thing in the, in the well stack, actually in the, you know, uh, providing the tools for financial advisors, uh, for investment uh, uh, industry. So what do you think would be the next big thing so like, for example, um, I talked to 
a number of uh, leaders in, uh, who provide the CRMs for uh, financial advisors, and they talk a lot about the behavior analytics and uh, implement any kind of machine learning techniques uh, to provide a kind of insights based on the user data. Uh, what 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 do you think would be like the next uh, uh, big thing for the wealth tech industry? There are several different things from several different perspectives, and it really also depends on are you looking at the technology aspect from the back end, the front end, or what the user is going to be using. Mm -hmm. One of the things that has intrigued me recently is um, machine learning and allowing uh, and, and artificial intelligence, where if we could build you know the AI that can look at the market and immediately know before anyone else, what to buy, what to sell, mm -hmm. that would kind of corner the market, but it would also probably end up kind of uh, causing a lot of chaos. What might be uh, something that actually is more achievable and, and uh, probably more powerful is something that if I am a firm and I am using this application, can it learn my strategies and how I think to implement what I want, need to implement or want to implement when I need it, or maybe even right before I think I need it, I know it, or before I know I need it. Um, because everyone, every advisor has their own special sauce. The power to be able to, I believe, uh, allow the machine to, the system to know how they think and, and know their, uh, their secret sauce to, to success and kind of help them do it for them. Mm -hmm. um, Another technology that I'm excited more on the back end for is uh, the ability to dynamically adjust the footprint of your application, mm -hmm. your infrastructure, at the drop of a hat. Okay. I want to. I have an application. I know it's uh, it's all of a sudden using a lot more resources. I can uh, spin up a, a copy of my application. Mm -hmm create a whole bunch of more resources, tackle that, and then when I don't need it, take that away all programmatically, automatically, without ever having to really manage it. That mm -hmm. is another thing that as we get more and more focused on response time and processing and being able to do things now without any slowdown, mm -hmm. that will become uh, another area where how can we take advantage of not only what we are using, but what we could be using that we don't even know is out there. So I talking about something like uh, load balancing or like more like dynamic load balancing. Uh, yeah, like your... dynamic load balancing with mm -hmm. using containers where a developer can programmatically update their containers without even having to open them and, and create images and mm -hmm. just deploy them as they want and have them uh, mm -hmm. create new uh, virtual machines, blow up, do what they need to do, and then shrink down. All so I, I guess you're, you're using uh, Docker for, as a, for containers or not? Docker is, uh, yes, the uh, technology that I have the most familiar with when uh, working with containers. So have you ever used uh, Kubernetes? I have not used Nexus now. Yeah, so they have this uh, like automated uh, container deployment and scaling and uh, management. So actually they say uh, it's like container orchestration uh, platform. So we used it in a couple of projects and uh, you know, it's, it's pretty, pretty powerful tool for container orchestration and uh, you know, you can do this dynamic scaling uh, with the Kubernetes, but uh, mm -hmm. you can, you need to, so you need to set up it in the, in the right way. Uh, yeah, so it's the, uh, the biggest barrier is the knowledge, is getting enough people up to date, knowing it thoroughly so mm -hmm. that they can solve any problem that comes up. Because with any automated solution, the, mm -hmm. um, the danger is that it could if something bad happens, it's going to happen fast. Yes, uh, yes. 
it's probably not going to happen. But when it does happen, it will go fast because it can, just as it can perform way faster than you when you're when it's doing things correctly, it can also just go down uh, downhill very fast at that same speed. Yes, yes, correct, correct. Because uh, we have we found uh, that. Uh, you know, you need to be really proficient in uh, configuring all this stuff with Kubernetes, uh, because it's, it's, if something is broken, and only a few guys know how to fix it, uh, so it's, it it's, it it can become become a real problem, uh, well, it, it, especially in the production environment. Yeah. And that goes into the uh, being able to have overlap between the teams, so that if any one person is not there they're sick, they leave the company, they pass away, unfortunately, you are not kind of up there without any knowledge of how to do some critical uh, process of your, of your development, of your company. So, it's the two-plane kind of practice of, you know, you never have the two executives go on the same plane. Yes, yes, certainly. Uh, you know, this is like a bus factor. factor. <laughs> mm -hmm. So, we we have talked about the performance of the of engineers and uh, metrics and uh, whether to uh, to use them or not. Uh, but uh, uh, another interesting question is about uh, your personal performance and things like uh, time management techniques. So my question here is: so do you use anything like you know, like getting things done approach or something else to manage your priorities, your goals, uh, I mean, your personal goals and, and prof uh, professional goals and manage your time. So if you can tell us something, it will be interesting. I don't necessarily practice what I preach in this sense, but really what you want to aim for is figure out what you need to be getting done and what your deliverables are and what you can accomplish within the time that's allotted to you in your work week. The temptation a lot of times is to just keep going and working longer and longer to get more and more done. But as I touched on earlier, you get uh, very quickly, you get diminishing returns. You'll put in more and more hours, but you're doing le actually doing less and less you're doing things worse and worse, and you're really just burning yourself out. So a lot yes. of it, in my opinion, is pace yourself and remember that, yes, there's a lot of work to be done, but there's always going to be work the next day. So okay. don't get caught up on just because you didn't finish this, the, it's the end of the world. There's always going to be work for tomorrow. Keep up the pace. Just make sure it gets done through um, – kind of like avoiding analysis paralysis. Okay. So how do you recharge yourself after the walk? What the most uh, efficient for you? Well, you know, after a long day of sitting at the computer and, you know, writing things and reading a lot, talking with people about software and development, I like to go home where I can, you know, sit on a computer and read and talk uh, and write some stuff and talk to people on software and development. Okay. Okay. Cool. Cool. It's the uh, it's the kind of the weird lucky thing of or, or unlucky of uh, when your hobby becomes your profession. Mm -hmm. It's really it does make your uh, job much easier and more enjoyable, but you are kind yeah. of at work more often because your hobby is then becomes your work. Yeah. Yeah. That's it. That's it. Certainly. Um, so, um, we also talked about that, uh, uh, it's, it's, it's important to know how to, uh, learn, uh, things, uh, related like to the, to, to, to business domain, but, uh, how, how actually do you learn yourself? So what, what the most efficient things, uh, for you, like, like reading books maybe or talking to other people or maybe attending some conferences or maybe watching some video. So what's, what's the best way to learn? What do you think? 
I would say the three things would be constantly learn and read, constantly be uh, inquisitive and, and look at what's coming up. Number two would be to talk to people who are experts in it or do know things that you don't know and not just get in the trap of talking to people who think and know exactly what you do know because you get your confirmation. Um, but I think the most important, the single most important thing, if you want to keep learning, is to go out and do. Find a project that you want to do, find any activity you want to do, and just try doing it. In doing it, you will learn more about it than you would learn just academically because you'll learn the practice of it. You'll learn what constraints you're going to run into, what hidden things that the book is not going to tell you. And you'll just kind of like feel and know it compared to just con uh, only knowing it conceptually. Yeah, so I, w I, I will agree with you. So yeah, so these are, these are interesting things. Uh, so another, another question I have is, uh, so what, what do you think the, um, the most interesting part of your job so what motivates you the most uh, uh, to be a, a product manager? Let's see. The single thing that motivates me the most in anything, really, when it comes to product management or, or working on projects or products is having control and having, more importantly, an impact on the project, the product, and the company. If I can go in there and I can see that if I work extra hard or I come up with a good idea or I help someone else with, with something um, and, and help them do well, I can see a measurable impact on the company or the product. The product gets better, it gets faster, we make more money or the company does better or we're able to hire more people or, or so on. That is really what keeps me driven to keep going. I remember when I was at a, uh, another financial company earlier in my career, mm -hmm. I ran into um, something that was rather demotivational in that I'm working here and I'm working support and I realized that the best thing I can do right now is to not lose a million dollars. That's the absolute okay. best thing, best case of, of my duties right now is not to lose money. And that is very deflating when you realize that you have no positive impact on the company or the product or the service, mm -hmm. even if it's only the perceived value of, um, say, what your management thinks of your job or of your role. It's why a lot of people in development get very frustrated because they're viewed as a cost center rather than as a value added or a core part of the product. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I think with anything, it, it's also important to just inspire that in your team, because if your team views that the same way that they have an impact, they will work extra hard, they will get things done and won't even feel it. If you don't and you let that hopelessness leak through, they're not going to go the extra mile. Everything's going to be a chore and they're going to work just hard enough to not to just get through the day. So um, you mentioned uh, uh, some other positions uh, that, that, that you had before. Uh, so do you see any difference between fintech companies and non-fintech non, companies? Uh, and actually, what, do, do you see any uniqueness blocking uh, uh, in the fintech uh, company comparing to other technology companies? Fintech is a little bit interesting in that it is compared to a lot of other um, technology companies it's both really behind in technology and also trying to be ahead of it you are trying to do a lot of bleeding edge stuff mostly with ai analytics to predict trends and behaviors of people but a lot shocking number of uh, companies in fintech have very ancient stacks and uh, older technologies that they're still upgrading from. So 
you get this really weird dynamic where you're talking about coming up with this new algorithm that will uh, be able to, you know, crush the market while at the same time talking about how you're using um, like software from the 1980s to run your custodial platform. Yeah. Yeah. Certainly. Certainly. It's kind of the NASA philosophy of it works. It's fast. Yeah. It was built 30 years ago, but it works. We don't want to break it. So we'll keep using it. Yeah, certainly. So there are so many, uh, you know, legacy systems in uh, financial world that you need to adjust uh, support and keep them uh, working because so many users are still using them. Uh, but I, I think, uh, but I think that uh, big institutions, they anyway, they have strategies to upgrade that kind of system, uh, that kind of systems. And, and even partner with fintech companies for that.